You are listening to the Evolution Exchange Podcast Australia, a melting pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful tech leaders in Australia. I'm Izzy, and I help connect businesses with tech talent. And today, I'm your host. And we're back with another episode of the Evolution Exchange Podcast. Today, I'm joined by three senior leaders within the Australian tech industry, and we're going to be discussing building high-performance teams. We'll kick things off by meeting today's panel. Dean, if you'd like to start us off. Thanks, Izzy. Uh, well, first of all, really happy to be here and, and hanging out with, with you all. I, I think it's a fantastic opportunity. Um, so my, my name's Dean Baker. I'm the head of engineering for a company called Realtair. So I've, I'm pretty new to the company. I've, I've been brought in to help us really move from a startup to a scale-out business. So my focus uh, at the moment is really building out our engineering teams, hopefully high-performance teams, uh, and you know, nailing out some architecture ways of working uh, and making sure that we're we're solid as we scale out. So that's me. Great, thank you, Dean. Uh, Brett, if you'd like to go next. Yeah, for sure. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Brett. Uh, I'm the head of engineering management at HotDoc. Um, I definitely have a North American accent um, because I am from Toronto, Canada. Uh, before HotDoc, I was working at PagerDuty, uh, where I built a whole bunch of high-performing teams, and now I'm here in Australia to do the same. Amazing. Thank you, Brett. Last but not least, Jason. Yeah, so thanks, Izzy. So yeah, Jason is my first name. Surname is DeVincentis. Um, that's an Italian surname, if you're curious. Okay, so anyway, so I work for a company called AttackForge. Um, my position is head of technology. Um, it sounds a lot more elevated than what it is to start up. Um, you can read all about Attack Forge on our website. I'm not going to go into it because I'm not supposed to be plugging the business really. <laughs> but anyway, you can read about it there. So I'm the head of technology at a startup. Um, and I guess outside of work, I'm a dad. I have two kids, six and three. Um, Personality-wise, I'm very curious. I'm a problem solver. Um, really into technology. Um, uh, probably career-wise, I consider myself still to be a software engineer at heart. Um, the head of technology is really just a role that I have. That's sort of how I view it, and that's how the sort of team sort of sees it, in a sense. So, there you go. Great. Thank you, everyone. So, we're going to jump into the first question, which I'd like to pose to the group. Really covering the basics here, but what is a high-performing team, and why do we want them? Jason, if you wanted to start us off with your thoughts on this. Yeah, I've actually been thinking about that quite a bit for a week now because I found out about the topic a week ago. And um, But it's actually an important thing. And I've realized it's actually an aspiration of like any any meaningful leader in a business. Like without a high-performing team, it's almost like, well, why would you not want a high-performing team? So I don't think there's a question of that. It's more that what is a high-performing team is the key thing. So then I was parsing it out and being a software engineer, I'm thinking on like from a parsing exercise, let's break down the words and see what they mean. So I was starting from the back and going forward. So, so what's a team? And I thought to myself, well, how is a team different from a group of people? So then I thought, well, a team at the very least would have to have a common objective. So if you're thinking like a basketball team, a common objective would be our team need to beat the other team by scoring more points. But that's just a very high-level objective. So if you have a team, and I sort of like put the air quotes on for those who can't see air quotes, (laughs) um, 
if you have a group of if you have a team that you think is a team and they don't at least agree on an objective that they're, they're heading towards, then it's very likely not a team. It's just a group of people. So that's a key distinction. So in terms of high performing team, how do we how do I think it actually works? I have opinions about it, um, and definitely you can read a lot about high-performing teams on the internet, and you know, there's a whole bunch of characteristics and stuff like that. But I've actually thought about it for quite a while because I've worked in a variety of teams over the years in the different companies and sizes, and I've always figured there are certain characteristics that are common in these teams. I just didn't realize that it's actually a thing. There actually is people who have written about this already. Um, but the, so I was thinking about it, but in general, how I think about it is that a team a team need to have a high level objective, and they need to op operate in such a way that they're essentially maximizing their potential. So, as an example, I started thinking about that and thinking, well, if 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 you ha you're in a team and you think, given given that team, and let's assume every member of the team have fixed qualities about them, you can't adjust them. No one can improve. Everyone has fixed like attributes. Like game characters, you know, they have a sliding scale of abilities, strength and agility and everything, right? So if you assume that, is there another method of running that team such that you can get better performance? And my answer to that question is yes, because I think of it like chess. Think of chess, right? So you have two players playing a game of chess. They're sitting on opposite sides of the board. Um, they have exactly the same team in a sense. They have the same pieces. They all do the same things. The only attributes that are different is the color. So if you think of it from that perspective, right, at the end of it, one, one player, competitor, beats the other one with exactly the same team. The qualities are the same. So the question is, why is one um, person able to beat the other one? It usually comes down to one person was able to enact the game plan and at the same time stopping the other person from doing theirs. So I, I think of it in simplistic terms. If you think of a team that you have, in, in like, a, like a working sense, there probably is something you can do to even maximize, say, fixed credentials on people. And so th that's the ultimately the aspirational goal. And so what I found in like reading about it and just having opinions is that there are some key characteristics that successful teams and high-performing teams tend to have. And if you were to sample a whole bunch of them and you'd sort of, it's hard to explain what it is but we, we tend to know when we see it or we tend to know when we're in that team. And so there tends to be certain qualities. So, so just very briefly, the certain qualities that I see as key is really a consistent sense of, it's like pride in your team. You have this sense of we want to achieve an objective, but at the same time, it goes beyond that. You feel like your team is more capable as a team than the smartest individual. And so you're invested in the success of the team. And you actually you actually view that your own personal success is driven further by the success of other people. So there's certain qualities there that lead to that point, in my opinion. So, mm -hmm. so typically, I think of it like uh, Ocean's Eleven. So if you think of Ocean's Eleven, right, so obviously it's a different context, but it's usually there's an objective that people want to get by, right? It's like, I don't know, break into a bank or whatever that may be. And so then in order to achieve that objective, you have to think about the key competencies that a team need to be composed of. 
So that you go through that process and you go, so you need people that be able to like, for Ocean's Eleven, right? It's like, who's going to drive the car? And then who's going to break into the safe? And who's going to, there's usually an aspect, who's going to do the social engineering? Who's going to be the person that's a diversion and stuff like that? So it's the same thing in the software project. It's exactly the same. There's certain skills you need to make a team. So usually it's like, you need someone who can represent the business in a sense, like maybe like a business analyst type. You, you probably need someone who's a bit more sort of project manager type and that sort of person who's sort of kept in some schedule. You need you need people who are really skilled in back end. You need people skilled in front end. So, so, so typically you have people to cover the bases, but the key part that I see of a high performing team is that people feel like they own that position, but at the same time, don't feel threatened by other people. So, and it works best when like the front end person knows to, how to have a conversation with the back end person or had a kind of conversation with the business person. And it's, it works the best when each person feels like they can maximize their own potential and, then, and at the same time, make the other person perform well and they're not in competition for each other. So it becomes this big unity and that you're more willing to invest the time. Now you can read about all these other things, you know, basically, but I think the, the common part is like, everyone feels like they have a key part in this team and no one's really in charge. There's like a general consensus that the best sort of things will just self-emerge. And that's really the key theme of, of what it is. You can read about these things on the internet, basically. Mm. That is the real key part that I think is a takeaway of that, is that there's a sense of shared ownership and a willingness to go above and beyond. It, it comes down to relationships and, and that sort of thing. So yeah, yeah that, that's and, pretty much yeah, my view on that. So Yeah, perfect. Brett? I'd, it'd be great to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, um, I'm going to use not nearly as many metaphors. I'm not nearly as strong with the metaphors as Jason. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, my like ideal view of high performing teams really comes down to like trust between the people on the teams. Um, which I think uh, was that something Jason was getting onto. Uh, was that like people need to trust on a on any given team that their coworkers are going to get things done? Um, if you ask someone to do a specific task, um, then of course you have to be able to trust them that they're going to be able to get that done. Otherwise, teams aren't going to be able to uh, break up a task, um, be able to like scope and ticket a task. Um, your Kanban and your all your other processes are going to fall apart. Um, I also think there's like broadly a misconception about uh, high performing teams and how right. they like. I guess what performing means is really what it gets down to. Um, so I think a lot of people are attracted to the term high performing teams because they hear that and they think oh, my team's going to get a lot of work done. Um, but I think the big thing to look out for there isn't that a high-performing team is is going to get a lot of work done, but they're also going to get a lot of work done correctly. Um, and it's going to be built to a standard that is going to last. There's not going to be a whole ton of tech debt. Um, you're also going to be able to, like, bring on a new employee 
Um, and they're going to be able to understand what the code does. Um, you're not, it's not just going to be startup mode all the time where you're trying to run through like every task as quickly as you can to find product market fit. Um, and yeah, and I guess just going back, it's just all about trust. Um, you've got to have, have those similar personalities, uh, personalities that can challenge each other, um, and go from there. Amazing. Thanks, Brett. I think that's spot on, not even just with software engineering teams, but any team in the workforce, if everyone's backing each other hundred percent, productivity will be through the roof in comparison. Uh, Dean, what do you think? Yeah, I think uh, I think Brett and, and Jace definitely hit the nail on the head in, in a lot of a lot of ways. Um, you know, I actually have this as an interview question. I do a lot of interviewing um, for candidates, and this is this is I do the second round or the more of the final round interviews, and this is a good question I think to to see what what people think of a high performing team is, and that and that really shows. Um, you know where they're at in their career as well, and trust is definitely a, a big thing. Having that safe environment, uh, communication, and collaboration comes up all the time. We have to be to, to you know have that connection to, to be able to work really really well together. Um, you know, uh, Jace was talking about that alignment. We want to make sure everyone's pulling towards that common goal. If if we don't have that alignment, the the team's just going in all sorts of directions, and you have to try and pull them back right. And 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 part of that, I feel is having the right mix of expertise and the guys talked about this again you know you need to have all sorts of people in a team right and 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 often you'll find those qualities complement or enhance other people's um skills and that's where the you know the sum is greater than than the whole and you know at I guess that that that's that's really it, isn't it? It's giving giving the team the ability to execute and, and giving them the ability to own the outcome, and I think that's where we we even take a, a level up on on our role. How do we unblock teams? How do we give them that autonomy so they can execute? They can just you know do the thing. We need to have that. We talk about autonomy with alignment. We talk about you know having the right engineering. Um, guardrails or the golden path so a team can actually execute without having to to stop and ask for directions right so we need to give them the tools and and the the frameworks and the pathways so they can succeed and um and and really yeah having having the right people in in the team and they're they're well supported by each other they're they're obviously competent sometimes the um the elephant in the room is competency we need to make sure that the guys and girls that we have in our teams have the right skills to to succeed and and recognizing that is incredibly important because i have seen you know a new hire come into a, a very high performing team just trash it you know because they, they were the wrong person they were the wrong fit they had the wrong skills whatever whatever it was so um we need to to really make sure that we're crafting these these teams and setting them up for success absolutely yeah. and that is a brilliant interview question i've noted that down for myself for later mm. Um, on the other side of the coin, I want to unpack what isn't a high-performing team. So what qualities get in the way of making a team high-performance? So, Brett, if you'd like to kick us off. Yeah, um, I'm going to go back to something I mentioned earlier, which is just that startup mentality and that like storming phase um, where you get a team together, they're 
building something really, really quickly. Uh, seems like they're doing a whole bunch of work and you're super happy about that. Um, and initially you might say to yourself, yeah, this team is great. Love these developers. I'm getting what I want. Um, but then three years down the road, you hear, well, we have to update to Ruby 6 now. Uh, and that's going to take six months. So goodbye, any new product features. Um, and yes, tech debt happens, but there are tons of ways to manage it. Um, if you had, for example, in that scenario I just gave, if you gave um, some room to do that tech debt up front or to set up a, a path for them to do it proactively, um, they'll probably go a bit slower in their initial development, um, but you won't run into those long-term things. Um, I think another thing, of course, is a high-performing team isn't a team that all looks the same um, or is all friends. Um, sometimes you will see a high-performing team that they're all from I'm just going to call out some random university, uh, RMIT. They're all from RMIT. Um, they all have the same skill set. They're going to build something that has no diversity and thought in it. Um, and that's not really great for your product in the end. Um, so you really want people from, from different backgrounds and different viewpoints to come in and build a great product um, with those different perspectives. And that's really where I would start. Um, but yeah, keen to hear other people's thought on what a high performing is high performing team is not. <laughs> well, great points so far, Dean. What do you think? Yeah, I I I agree with with a lot of that. I think some people see good culture and it's you know playing ping pong and you know your mates as you say your mates with everyone and 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 it's super fun. I think that's cool. It's it's good to have fun at work and 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 so on. But it's not. Um, really an indicator of a high performing team just because everyone's having a good time and um, and enjoying themselves are they you know are they outputting the right thing uh, and and that and that sort of and again Brett touched on it as well like be careful what you celebrate you know punching out a, a bunch of features is is great but what is the quality like how many defects are you introducing into into production um, do you have a culture of firefighters so people dropping in at 2 a.m because there's a production incident putting out the fire, the next day they get a high five and, you know, there's comms go out, oh, Dean's done a great job, like fantastic, you know. Maybe Dean put the bug in. Maybe Dean should have done some uh, some better testing and, and due diligence and 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 just that busy work, you know. Um, making making sure that we're we're customer-centric, we're, we're doing the right things for the customer at the right time um, because we can often, as devs, you know, go go after the shiny thing and, and not really think about the customer and, that costs a lot of time and money, and 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 that's. They've done some great engineering. Don't get me wrong. We've rolled out a bunch of new Kubernetes clusters. Fine. Did we need them? To, did did that impact the customer? Um, probably not. So, so they're they're things that I, that I find that can look like a high performance team, but value for business, value for customer might might not be there. Mm. Spot on. Thank you, Dean. Jason, what are your thoughts? Yeah, yeah. Not to sound like I'm repetitive, but yeah, I, I like to agree with both their viewpoints. I just, I guess, where I probably vary is in 
So, yes, obviously, um, so Brett, you're talking about, you know, the sort of startup, startup mentality, just get things done, blah, blah, blah. And it seems like, yeah, then what, what you're sort of posturing is that it could lead to technical debt, which is absolutely true. Um, so I sort of have the view, okay, so for me, a high-performing team is really de- dependent on the context and the, the nature of the company. A high-performing team is really, a, it looks different depending where you are. Because your expectations are different depending on where you are. If you're in a startup, if you can't get your product to market in time or you can't develop it before you run out of money or you can't get it to market in time before a competitor does, then tech debt isn't even a problem yet. So it's a different goal. So for, for like a pre-MVP startup, it's about let's get these people together who are very motivated who believe that this product is worthwhile. And it's it's not to say that you don't think about technical debt. It's more that it's less of the priority at this point in time. The, the goal here is that we need to make a product that is able to demonstrate to the market that we have a compelling, you know, worthwhile solution. So either either we can seek further investment or we can you know, capitalize on opportunity or even the fact that maybe it's bootstrapped and we can take the business to the next level. But then as you start to get bigger, then it's different. So I think the key part of it really is that it needs to be clear in the company's culture what high performing looks like. And it really does depend on where you are. And so for that reason, it's the same qualities. It's the same things. I think I think people who want to do well will do well regardless. They will do even better if they're given the definition of what good looks like in a particular context. And that's the key thing. So I, I don't believe there's any cookie cutter approach to saying, follow this process and you'll get a great team. It's more the fundamental qualities of what make a good team. And and everyone wants to get the A team. Like everyone wants a team of Michael Jordans, for example. But the reality is that the real world, it doesn't work that way. You know, maybe your company isn't that well known. Maybe other people don't want to work for you. You know what I'm saying? So it's really, for me, in my view, it's how do I maximize on what we have, what we're capable of getting? Like, you can't always pay the salaries that other companies can pay. Or or maybe maybe your corporate policy has it such that retaining staff is difficult because it's so hard to give them a pay rise. Yeah, so, I think that's a really good point, Jason, um, that I think we all missed is that a high performing team also is a team that can adapt to yeah, the different circumstances. It's, it's, it's true. People have talked to me in the past. Uh, I rabbit on about this so much. But so I have a bias because I work for a startup and I have a certain mentality about things. But I believe what we do at Attack Forge and what startups do in general is that we're truly agile. You have to be. You know, market opportunities change. Um, sometimes your financial runaway runs out and then you're in trouble. So you have to be agile. You have to pivot. So there's there's the difference between, like, say, being agile, which is what I believe you are in, in a successful startup, and then, like, doing agile. So doing agile is saying some company consultancy, some, you know, whatever zeitgeist of understanding has said, Follow these steps and this will make you agile. It's the same. I'm saying the same thing for high performing teams is that there are certain principles that make a team high performing 
it's variant on the company and context and situation and even the composition of the team. Yeah. Now, uh, so then you have to recognize those, those qualities and then strive for them and optimize them when they don't work. So what may have worked in the previous team, even or even the team at the same time in parallel, may not work for this other team. And so then you recognize, I'm striving towards these qualities. What do I need to optimize such that it's giving better objective outcomes? And I think that's what it is. And it's so easy to fall into a trap of saying, I'm a great manager, I have the process, and I have the answers. I don't think it is. I think it's an optimization process and we're always learning new things. But what doesn't change is that we can agree of what the goal is. Yeah. I think think you're right there as well. um, And I'm in the position now where I'm going from a startup to a scale out, right? And and there's a pretty clear inflection point there. And, And you're spot on when you're going for market fit, you're going for, you know, to, to get a product out and to get that traction. You don't really care so much if you're generating technical debt because if it fails, who cares? You've got a bunch of technical debt. Who cares? If you succeed, what a fantastic problem. You've succeeded and, and now you've got some technical debt to hit. Um, I think the the themes that we're still talking about, the trust, the communication, the collaboration, having the right mix of people, all of those principles still apply. Correct. Um, and I think it's our it's our job as engineering leaders to go, okay, cool. We're a startup. We're going for it. We're we're you know we're a duck paddling. That's fine, perfect. Let's get it done. But then when you hit that inflection point of traction and revenue, um, and risk, then you go, okay, great. As an engineering leader, we're going to pull it back a bit. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna start investing now in quality. We're gonna get our automation up to scratch. Um, we're going to, you know, invest more into the DevSecOps and away from the ClickOps and test automation away from manual, manual regressions, right? So, and that's our job. And then we have to start shaping teams a little differently, perhaps. Um, the team that got you, uh, you know, to your Series B fundraise might not be the team to to take you forward. You might have to adjust that team a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Great points, everyone. Uh, that leads us on nicely to the hiring element of high-performance teams. So we've we've sort of touched on this, um, but Dean's question for the group was surrounding what qualities we look for in individuals to make creating this team easier. So obviously we've touched on communication, collaboration, um, trust throughout the team. When you're hiring someone, how do you strike that balance between getting someone in who's technically really competent then also mixing that with kind of personal attributes. Dean, did you want to kick us off? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a really tough one, isn't it? It's uh, so we we have a relatively lightweight process at the moment, and, and we've got technical rounds and and cultural rounds. Um, we do have some sort of tests. Um, I'm not. A, I'm not. A, I'd love to hear what the guys think about coding tests. Um, but I'm not a I'm not a huge fan of them uh, personally. Yeah, yeah, agree. Um, so so me again being that sort of more final round, I'm I'm a bit more cultural. I'm, I'm interested in what their opinions are on things like high performance teams and, um, but probably the biggest thing that I'm focusing on when I'm when I'm hiring for for people pretty much at any level is that culture of learning. How how do they learn? You know, we work in in IT. It's an incredibly dynamic environment. Things are changing all the time. There's you know, God forbid you're a front end dev. There's a new framework every other week, <laughs> so we need to keep engaged, right? We need to know what's happening, uh, and and 
what, what are people doing to learn, right? Uh, do they just, whatever project comes their way, they'll sort of learn that or are they, have they got things off on the side? Um, has to take it with a bit of a grain of salt, obviously. You know, Dean, 10 years ago, I had side projects. I was doing stuff with mates. I've got a, a three-year-old and a one-year-old. I'm not doing so much of that anymore. So you do have to take all of these things into, into account. But definitely culture of learning is is a big um, is a big thing for me. And and having that customer focus as well, like Feature Factory, just taking stories and punching them out is great. And maybe you need those those sort of people, but also if you're looking for those high-performing teams, are they thinking about customers? Do they want to get in front of a customer? Are they interested in that? Um, they're they're really interesting things to um to dig into. Uh, and and the other question that I love asking people, which you get really interesting answers, is like, what is your dream job? What what is the job that will just get you out of bed today? And uh, I've had a wide range of answers to this, and some might as just Frankly, I just want more money. Okay, you, you know what you want. Um, other people are, um, you know, a bit more, you know, I want to be surrounded by really, really smart people. I want to be doing really cool things. And it's just a really nice gauge to see where people are in their in their careers because we're not going to hire the the 1% all the time. You do need that good, solid middle ground of doers. So I find that a really good question. Yeah. Great points. Thank you, Dean. Um, I'd love to hear what you two think about uh, coding tests as well. Uh, Jason, what do you reckon? Well, this is actually closer to home because, like I said, I still consider myself a software engineer and I've been through a variety of different interviews and process. Okay, so, so here's my problem with coding tests, right, is that if when you're an actual software engineer and became a manager, you sort of know what it's about and you can sort of recognize qualities in people. I understand why people do tests, but I think it's optimizing for the wrong characteristics. Mm. People who decided that they want to get into computer science engineering become a developer. You know, we have bought into a life of learning new things almost all the time and then having to re-justify ourselves when we leave for every new job. Like It's almost like they look at your experience and go, well, we know you have x amount of years and this thing this is you know and you, you're really good at it but what do you know about this new framework that just came out a few months ago and we have to re-justify ourselves every time so we didn't choose this career because we we're incapable of learning new things that's at least my view so so the question being for me is what what's harder for someone who's technical what is actually hard about being a software engineer is it the learning a programming language or learning a new framework or is it all the other intangibles? Like, do I know what I need to build? Do I know how to work with the stakeholders? Do I know how to deliver it, be timely, estimate it correctly, um, balance all the different factors that are all competing? They're, they're in my view, the, the key parts. Almost everyone who's in the field who makes a past a couple of years working are very technical and can learn new things. So why are we testing experience? Or even people have gone to uni that they can, what they know about a programming language. It's, it's kind of beside the point. The questions I ask is not so much the things, what do you know about a detail about a programming language? It's more, what fundamental concepts do you know right now? So did you look, what do you understand about computing? What do you understand about testing and those sort of concepts and how you think about problems. Do you know what technical debt is? Do you know what race conditions are? Do you know 
do you know how to recognize one and, and techniques to get around them? In terms of like the, a programming language, because testing, the reality is it, it falls in two categories. Either it's what I call you're a linguist kind of thing. You know so much detail about one programming language. And the testing in that is always of the same type. It's usually a multiple choice test. You answer these questions about syntax, and it really favors people who know a lot about one particular programming language. And just because you know a programming language doesn't mean you know how to build a program. And they're two kind of, they're not really the same thing, and that's the key part. And then you have the other testing, which really favors computer science. So how much do you know about a certain algorithm? Can you can you quick sort this thing? Can you can you do the variety of things? And those tests tend to favor people who either recently graduated, went to the kind of universities where they do that, or spent you know several months on lead code figuring out how to get good at that thing. What is the translation to that to the real job? Unless you're writing algorithms in your job, which it's kind of bad engineering to do that, then what are we actually testing? We're testing people who are good at lead code. So for me, I, need, I, 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 I sort of, I need someone to be technical capable, but I'm more assessing, are these people capable of learning new things? And, and are they gonna learn it on a good foundational base? And that, that's, that's, that's basically my interview process. And that's the reason why all these programming tests, I do well on them for a fact, but it doesn't mean I think they're actually a good measure of um, capability. Yeah. So. And I guess it comes back again for you as the same as Dean, having that learning culture and having someone who's kind of willing to throw themselves into, yeah, into anything. Um, Brett, what are your thoughts? Yeah. On coding tests, I think, of course, I agree. They're absolutely terrible. Um, I don't do them. I haven't done them in ages. Um I am totally on board with people saying that they are dropping out of an interview process because there is a coding challenge. Um, because I think it's just an unreasonable expectation at this point um, to be asking people to do those things. Um, on like on the part of what to replace it with, um, I think the reason people lean to doing a coding test is because of course they want to be able to justify a hire um, and we've all grown up in an academic environment where testing is the way that we make sure that people know what they're doing um, even though we continually prove that testing is not the correct way for a majority of people um, that's what we default to um, Recently, I've been doing a mix of a short homework assignment followed by an iteration on that homework assignment as a pairing exercise. Um, and I'm really enjoying that because going back to collaboration, um, in the pairing section, you get to see how they collaborate with people, you get to see how they work, how comfortable they are with the code that they wrote themselves. And then with the homework piece, you also get to see how they communicate asynchronously, which is really important in a company that's fully remote, which I believe most of us are right now. Um, and that kind of comes like full circle back to high-performing teams because 
the whole point of the technical challenge for me is just making sure that someone is uh, highly collaborative, very good at communication. Uh, and then the third thing is that they know what they're doing. Um, personally, I think if someone's done six years of uh, software development at other companies, they are probably a competent software developer. So the point of the interview cycle is not to make sure they're a competent software developer, but to make sure they're going to fit on your high-performing team. That is spot on. Thank you, everyone, for your contribution. So obviously, in a chat about high-performing teams, we cannot exactly ignore what happens once you've established this team. So let's talk a little bit about retention. So Brett is keen to unpack how we keep high-performing teams in their flow state. So more specifically, keeping these top-level engineers happy, working, and retained. Brett, I'd love to hear how you handle this to start us off. Yeah. Um keeping high-performing teams functioning is so hard these days um mostly because i think there's a lot of competition in the market uh there's like probably the highest wages we've ever seen in forever really super high inflation um all of these things kind of contribute to making fostering a long-lasting team very difficult um and there's tons of different ways of like retaining people. Um, but I think ultimately it comes down to making sure that your teams have a well-known purpose. They are excited about that purpose and they are being challenged. Um, I think it was Dean mentioned earlier that um, like a main driver or maybe it was Jason. I'm not sure. My brain is fried <laughs> and it's only Tuesday. Um, but yeah, so a big part of why we're software developers is to just keep growing. Um, and a big part of that growing is making sure that we are like always being challenged at work. So you need to make sure your developers are being challenged all the time to make sure they're retained. Um, and yeah, I'm keen to hear what other people are doing to keep uh, high performing teams retained because it is so hard when Atlassian is offering like 40,000 more uh, a yep. year on salary and stock options. <laughs> um, Jason, I know you're interested in unpacking this as well. So what are your thoughts? Yeah, well, yeah, so I, I'm probably the least manager type out of Brett and Dean. Like Dean's probably the most experienced and Brett, you definitely have a lot of, sounds like you've done a lot of hiring. Oh, I. Because I'm sort of relatively new to this, I, I, I look at it from the from empathetic perspective. So I look at myself. Why have I ever left the position? That's what I look at. Because, like I said, I, I still consider myself to be probably like a senior, maybe software engineer, maybe like a tech lead, something of that level. Um, so why have I left? And then I think, well, then how do I create an environment where it's the opposite of that? And it usually comes down to a variety of factors and, and they all interplay. So, so I think it starts off as being, I've always enjoyed environments where I felt empowered and I felt like I can make my, my opinions matter and they make a difference. And I know for a large business, it's, it's a, it feels like a bad idea to have people that are irreplaceable because for obvious reasons, if they leave and they sink your company, that, that's probably a bad practice but it's very good to make the person feel like they're irreplaceable, to feel valued. 
So I, th I think there's a fundamental problem with large businesses uh, in the quest of trying to get rid of things like would seem to be unfavorable qualities like favoritism and that sort of thing. They've made it almost impossible as as a software engineer to get a promotion. Now, some people don't want to uh, do anything other than be a technical person. And there's no clear avenue of how to get to the next step. So if you start in a company, let's say as a graduate, you just graduate from university, maybe start a graduate program that goes for three years. And then you step into say a junior role. You could have been there for a period of time and there actually is no automatic migration to the next level. So you have to sort of reapply. And what ends up happening is that, why do I have to adjust myself? You've been seeing me working for the past few years now. And so what ends up happening is that you get resentment towards your, your company. You feel like they don't appreciate you. And then, and then you get wandering eyes. And it's, it's, the money is only one aspect of it. Like a lot of us real technical people don't, we need to make the minimum amount of money because it has practical value in our lives. But it's not the key motivating factor that makes you stay at a company for the most part. It's usually the lack of appreciation. And it, it comes from a few things. So a lot of the time, the lack of appreciation is maybe you're working in a dysfunctional team and you feel like your effort is not being reciprocated by your teammates or your effort is not being recognized by your manager or your manager is recognizing but then doing nothing about it. And so it's, it's that combination of factors that causes people to leave. So the way I see it is that if you can create an environment that reverses all those effects, then that's how you retain people. So as for the money side, absolutely. Like, you know, it, when people, when a company dangles a big page, you know, pay thing in front of you, yeah, it makes you want to leave. But for most people who've been around the traps a bit, what we realize that the money is only exciting for a short period of time. And then once you've gotten the job, you've gotten over the fact that you've attained this trophy. So then it's more about what else is there? And so ultimately what we buy into when we change companies is not so much how much you get paid. We're buying into a dream. What can this company give us that was impossible to achieve where we currently are? So the way I see it is that as a manager, I have to dig into the psychology of the people in my team and go what drives and motivates them. And, and then and what is the antidote of feeling that way, of having this resentment, feeling like, your manager is incapable of promoting you and stuff like that. I follow down those principles and then, you know, and that's it. That's, that's basically mm. what I do. So That ties into what Brett said as well about having a clear roadmap. I think mm. that would be massive for retention as well. Um, Dean, I'd love to hear if there are different techniques or if there's more to consider when managing an offshore team in terms of retention as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll just touch on what the what the boys said. I, I, I think everyone's pretty spot on. Um, we talk about EVP, the employee value proposition, which is more than salary, although salary is a bit of an elephant in the room and there's a lot of salary being uh, banded about. And that is, uh, in my experience, I've had very, very engaged developers just get an offer and they and we can't match it. And it's like, well, you know, and, and, and that can be a bit of a thing. But um, career pathways... Spot on as well. I think Joe, you, you talk about that. Um, I don't know if you guys have career frameworks in in your organisations, but it's incredibly powerful to have um, a career framework and show 
people where to, where they can go within your organization. And and there's the individual contributor track that you talk about, Jay. So I just want to be an IC. I just want to punch out code. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's an engineering management track. And it is important to split the two. And and I've found in my experience, you do need that level above senior engineer to really show people that there is a path, you know, and I don't have to go into managing people. And that's that's incredibly important. Mm. Uh, and that married up with L&D, obviously. So yes, we have a career framework. Here's how you get from junior to mid to senior, whatever. But here's also the L&D offering that we're going to help you and we're going to, you know, we're going to support you in getting to, to where you need to be. Um, in terms of the the distributed teams or or um, you know offshore teams, we at Realtor we we do engage uh, and we're incorporated in in the Philippines and we have a lot of engineers out of Manila. So we we actually hire directly there. We don't we don't go through an SI and we don't go through an agency to um, to grab talent. We 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 go direct and. Yeah, you really do have to be aware of different cultural nuances, right? Uh, um, how I speak and behave with with the senior Australian dev is going to be different um, to how I speak and behave with uh, a dev from Manila, and that's and that's okay. I think it's okay to say that. I think we can we can all recognise that, and as and as soon as you recognise that, you're going to have a much better time um, managing these folks. And uh, I'll, I'll be honest, I've I've done it for a while now, and I and when I first started. Um, you know, managing teams from a different culture, I did struggle. You know, my my expectation management wasn't there, and I think you have to work extra extra hard on managing expectations when you do have a remote team um, of a different culture, because you know there's implicit and explicit expectations, and we all have it. Um, you know, how I speak to to Jason versus Brett is going to be maybe even construed differently, right? Because Brett's not from Australia; he's from a country very, very close, like, you know, it's a Commonwealth brother, but um, there's still going to be, he's still going to take me slightly differently to, to how, how Brett will. So um, it is a big focus. And I think leaning on your, um, on your HR function as well as an engineering manager is, is important to make sure that they can help, help you help them. Um, yeah. That, so it, it's all basically the same, but I think you do have to wrap an extra level of, um, probably empathy and 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 um, you know which can be hard because I've come up from an engineering track as well. Um, so I've I've been a, you know an engineer for the longest time. We're not renowned for our empathy and our people skills. I've got to say, <laughs> so it is something you do have to work on. Um, I think as you as you emerge into these engineering management functions, um, but but the themes are all there. The themes are all the same. How what a high performant Australian team, Canadian team. Um, team out of the Philippines, that's all there, right? There's a communication area, there's a collaboration area, there's a trust there, um, and and are we all pulling towards the same goal? Like it's it's all it's all the same. You just might have to massage your messaging a little bit differently. <laughs> yeah, that's a really interesting insight. So thanks for that, Dean. Overall, as a chat, I feel like uh, you guys have really unpacked the the real key elements of building and maintaining these teams. Before we sign off, was there anything else that anyone wanted to add or discuss? Hmm. <laughs> well, do, do you, see, for, for me, I, I feel for me, it's I believe I'm working in a high-performing team and I have to believe that because otherwise what am I doing? 
and, and I believe it's aspirational. But in, in terms of like, so with Dean, with, with your, you said, how successful do you feel you have been in building high-performing teams? Like, has it always worked out? Or, and when it hasn't, like, how do you recognize and how, how do you optimize and that sort of thing? The one, the one thing that I didn't really touch on too much is around, um, I, I suppose I did it a little bit. Like we have to free the teams up so that they can they can flow, right? They can get stuff done. Mm. So uh, we talked a bit about the golden path. Um, I think you need to organize your teams in such a way that they can deliver without handoffs. So I don't want team A dependent on team B, for example. That's a surefire way to kill the flow of team A. Um, we talk about, cross-functional teams so does a team have everyone needed to deliver all the way to production do they have someone who can be the voice of the customer do they have someone who can release the thing into prod and are are the team on the hook for prod i think if you can if you can start to craft that then then you're you're well on your way to enabling or giving a team an opportunity to be a high performing team right there's no one pointing there's no finger pointing there's no you know um you're not throwing over the fence to a silo and saying it's I've given it to release management or whatever the QAs have it. I don't know. I've done my job. If you can destroy some of those barriers, then then you're gonna you're gonna be really well set up for a fast flow team and autonomy with alignment, right? So I don't want teams coming to me to say, hey, I need help with an architectural thing. Like, can can we document this stuff? Can we have patterns that are that are ratified that you can just use? Um, and that's a maturity thing, probably that I'm working on a real tear because we are startup where you just sort of bang it out, whatever. Now I'm starting to put in place these RFCs, whatever you want to call them, so that next time there's a similar problem, they they take the pattern and they and they run with it. They don't have to stop and talk. Um, and that's what you want. So heaps of collaboration inside of the team, not heaps of collaboration outside of the team if if you can. And then they can they can go for it. Yeah, yeah. So like you want to optimize for like local decisions and and spot on. Kind of yeah, yeah. And that's in, that's empowering the team, right? Yeah, yeah. That's empowering team. So it's it's interesting because then you do that, but then you think, well, you're almost cr- having a situation where you're creating another silo. So in one hand, decisions are being made locally, but then decisions can be made such that they're you know different to a decision made in another silo because that's essentially what we're doing here to be effective yeah. you need to be in a silo and make it local so yeah. so it's interesting how do you balance that out so um it's, yeah. it's a challenge isn't it and i think um probably brady's got a, an answer for this as well but that's that's our job as engineering managers right yeah, exactly. we, need to, we need to align these guys and brett's nodding so i'll let you talk mate <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's like that's I feel like all my job is is just aligning teams, making sure people uh, know exactly what they're working on. Um, and again, it's just like empowerment, empowerment. Like the reason that working in like a fast startup feels so good and you're like, oh yeah, I got another commit through, I got another feature out is because the team is small and empowered to do anything they want. Um, so as you scale out, you have to be able to recreate that with 35 engineers. Um, how do you how do you empower everyone to do their maybe not even their best work, but to do work mm. over and over again, uh, repeatedly without being stopped to ask, can I do this? Mm. Um, and yeah, it's it's really hard. Uh, creating high performing teams is extremely difficult. Um, 
every company I've worked for has had a high-performing team, but the high-performing team hasn't always lasted the entire time. Um, and it's constantly a chase. Yeah, interesting. The dream. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm just curious, like just just quickly. So, so if you think if so if you think about so you as an engineering manager, let's say the company gets even bigger, and then you need, you have multiple say sub areas where they all need to road engineering manager. I've just sort of just made this up in the last like thirty seconds, but do you think there's a concept of like the engineering managers together being a team? And so it's sort of like a team of team kind of situation. Yeah, definitely. So this is where you get into like Patrick Lencioni does a really, really good talk about um, what you would call your first team um, and how that works at like larger organizations. Um, so for example, like your C-level execs, their first team should be the C-level execs. It shouldn't be the team underneath them because ultimately you your job is working for that like C-suite. Uh, you need to be able to help each other out to get results uh, and build a great company. Um, and then uh, it's the same for an engineering team, like having multiple managers on a team, um, you need to be able to align them on similar goals uh, and having them as a team and having them aligned on what the overall goal is is like super super important um i did a lot of that at my last job uh my my engineering team was uh 45 engineers in a 200 person 200 engineer org uh it was quite large um but you have to make sure that you have that alignment otherwise it won't work spot on well, okay. oh. I was I was gonna say, Dean, what are your thoughts on that? But I think you said it all in two words. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And, uh, but it's the nature of it, right? As you get bigger, you start getting that fat middle management layer, right? You start getting people to to rein in the the troops, and you start. And you, it's just inevitable, and and that's that's the friction of get going from a startup to a scale out as well. That's you know, what do I need these people? You know, well, we're fine. We'll punch in. Features out, no worries. Like, it, but you do need to start getting that rigor in, and and that that's that alignment uh, function. And um, you don't want to go too. It's a balancing. You don't want to go too heavy. You don't want to go too light. It's a real art. There's no there's no silver bullet to it. And and each organization is different. Like the, the yeah. Yeah, awesome. I feel a problem with that sort of. It's not a problem because like, it, it happens to every large company. They all will inevitably have this dream of this sort of thing when we're small and then we all inevitably become the same way. But I think it, it remains that way because then you have these roles that their very existence is justified on the fact that they have this structure. And it's almost, it's counterintuitive to say, yeah. maybe there's a way of having the executive level and then having other people collaboratively working and figuring out, let's say someone figures out some great way of having multiple teams collaborating with multiple teams without middle management, it almost feels like that system is, it's like designed against that. And, and I've always wondered like, how can we fix that? Because whenever I've worked in those environments, I just don't think they work well. They, they don't result very well in innovation. And that is the reason why we have startups is because large companies are very risk averse mm. and it's all about conservatism. It's we build something big and we don't want to lose this. 
we're not necessarily looking at doing anything new. We just don't want to lose what we have. And that mentality is fine, but it doesn't result in innovation and it doesn't actually result in an environment where your good engineers want to stay. Unless they have jumped above the pleb level and got broken the ranks and become an engineering manager, for example, or, or above. And that's the key part. So, yeah, I've always wondered, is there a solution to this? Because it doesn't seem to be around. Uh, the only thing you can maybe do as a large organization is spin off a subsidiary and then almost start again in that. Say, there's a new product line we want. Instead of incorporating that into the, to your large organization, you say, well, let's just spin off a sub company and let them do their startup thing. Mm. Uh, I, I don't know. That seems to, or you just buy another company. But I don't know. What's the solution? I, I don't know what it is, but it's just it's it's a question that I have, and um, I'm curious. I'm sure. I'm sure if we can find the solution, uh, <laughs> then we could be making the next Microsoft. Yeah. <laughs> I think the, the whole journey is trying to find that solution, right? Mm, if yeah. any of you know it, you can let me know as well. And I won't yeah. tell anyone. <laughs> um, <laughs> quickly we can just do it the four of us <laughs> thank you everyone for the great questions and contributions put forward we'll leave the discussion here for today but again I'd like to say a massive thank you to Dean, Jason and Brett for the great discussion on building high performance teams thank you all for listening and we'll catch you next time on the next instalment of the Evolution Exchange podcast bye